Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 27 on May 7th, 2011. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Eero Podcast Network blog at epnnetwork.eero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-568-8276. Today, I am interviewing Rex Alexander, who is a consultant specializing in safety training related to the air medical and helicopter industry. He is also the regional operations manager for the Central United States for OmniFlight Helicopters Incorporated and serves as president of the National EMS Pilots Association. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. I know you are probably asking, where have I been? Well, no excuses, except that I am passionate about the air medical community and, I am sure like many of you, busy with my work as a director of an air medical program that seems like it has an endless number of things going on, but all good. It was really encouraging that I heard from several listeners who asked when the next podcast was going to be. I told them all to hold on as I had a number of them in the works, so I appreciate the encouragement. You will notice that the Air Medical Today website has a new look and feel. I'm in the process of moving some of the earlier podcast episodes over because in doing so, I had to fix some of the links and pictures. Hopefully, it will all be completed soon. Remember, as always, that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email or call me if it is not. I would also appreciate if you would also link Air Medical Today on your pages. I am also on the lookout for all the Air Medical and Critical Care Transport pages on Facebook, so it is easier for others to find you. It seems like the number of programs and hospitals on Facebook has just been mushrooming. I still find it interesting that most programs, whether they are hospital or community-based, block access to Facebook while staff is at work. Perhaps that will change with time, as Facebook is much more than it started out to be as a college party site, as I am sure most of you regular users already know. Finally, to continue all the work I am doing in bringing news and information and the podcast, I still need your financial support. So if you can become a sponsor, your company or name will be listed according to the level of support. Sponsorship is also a great way to highlight your company or name, So do contact me as soon as possible.
Today I am interviewing Rex Alexander, who is a consultant specializing in safety training related to the air medical and helicopter industry. Rex is currently the Regional Operations Manager for the Central United States for OmniFlight Helicopters Incorporated. He has worked in multiple capacities over the 16 years he has been with OmniFlight, including pilot, safety manager, and base manager. He serves on the board of directors for the National EMS Pilots Association as the president and served as the president of the Indiana Association of Aeromedical Services for five years. Rex owns and operates his own company called R.J. Alexander Consulting, specializing in consulting and training directly related to the air medical, safety, and helicopter industries. He currently sits on the Helicopter Association International's Air Medical Committee and Helipad Committee and is a member of the National Fire Protection Association Committee for Helipad Design. Rex has lectured throughout the United States to multiple air medical, fire, EMS, and law enforcement agencies on a wide range of aviation and safety topics. He is an alumnus of Parks College of Engineering, Aviation, and Technology of St. Louis University, from where he holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Aviation Maintenance and Management. He is a licensed commercial helicopter pilot and a certified airframe and power plant technician. Rex is a former member of the United States military, serving worldwide as an Aero Scout instructor pilot for 11 years with the U.S. Army, both on active duty and in the Indiana National Guard. He and his wife, Cindy, live in Fort Wayne, Indiana, with their three children. Welcome, Rex, and thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Hey, I appreciate the invitation. Thanks, Ed. Well, having known you for a number of years uh, now, it seems like every year you get busier and busier with all your activities, uh, ranging from the Indiana Ames to now the National EMS Pilots Association as president, uh, all along with your position with OmniFlight and now a consulting business. I thought I was busy as Ames president, but uh, you have put new meaning to the word busy. How do you do it all, Rex? Well, it's like any juggler tells you. Um, you start out with one, then you go to two. <laughs> you just keep adding more until you find out what your limitations are. Yeah, well, you're you're good at it because uh, you've got a lot of balls in the air, and, and uh, you're doing a great job with it. Well, well, let's talk about some of the National EMS Pilots Association initiatives because I think that is uh, why I originally contacted you about being on the podcast. and. Let's first talk about CHAMPS, or the Cultural Health Assessment and Mitigation Program, or what was first known as, I think a lot of people uh, remember, as the No Pressure Initiative. How long has uh, NEMSPA been working on, on this? And tell our listeners a bit about the background and how this started, and the details of what the program is all about. I would say we probably started somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four years ago. And it started out as a discussion. We did some surveys across the United States with some pilots, specifically looking at um, when they made decisions, what it was that was driving the decision-making process. And we found throughout the surveys an underlying problem that we identified early on, that there were some pressures being put on pilots, and also in some cases the med crew members themselves, to accept flights or to do things that they would normally not do. 
So with that, then we went back and reinvestigated it um, a couple more times through different other avenues, and we found that we, there was a there was a problem there. Um, but we were still trying to quantify it. So a little more research, a little more development, and what we've ended up with now is quite a long um, process, but uh, the one thing that we had to do to quantify it so that it was something that we could point to without question is do a scientific study on it. We brought in a lot of expertise on survey results and several individuals that have uh, put in a significant amount of time free of charge, and then once we um, put it all together, we actually put in for a grant money and were awarded uh, by the uh, Vision Zero group for $10,000 of seed money. Yeah. And we took that money and immediately turned around and brought more people in, had uh, several um, convenings of uh, uh, several groups of people. And what we've ended up with is uh, this new um, CHAMPS, the Cultural Health Assessment Mitigation Program, which is a survey program that will be released here in the near future that will be now housed by uh, the Medevac Foundation, has agreed to oversee it. And NEMSPA's uh, brainchild, so to speak, but Medevac and Ames has uh, decided to take that on, thank goodness. And what we will do is send these surveys out to different organizations so that their people can take these surveys then send them back to them and show them where they are internally, what their philosophy is as a whole, what their just culture really looks like based on the surveys. Then they can also match that up and look at themselves against the entire industry. Mm -hmm. So we're really excited about it. And the driving factor is, you know, the pressure, um, issues that we've seen across the board from our surveys, and we're hoping that this will educate people and see, help them see things that um, in some cases they may have missed. Well, you know, back in the mid-'80s, there was a, a big push because of the accents to keep the pilot separate from, you know, what the, what the patient condition was. It was more or less, can you do a flight from, you know, Hospital X to you know back to uh, uh, Hospital Y, and that seems to have, I think, eliminated some of that pressure. What are some of the things that you're finding now that might be you know subtle type pressures that uh, that many of us might not even be aware of? Well, there's always those pressures for uh, weather and acceptance of flights and weather that's below the minimums or. The thing that I don't like to hear, and I tell pilots as a regional manager, I've got 21 bases, and I always tell them, I said, I don't want to hear you ever say, we're going to go take a look, and we're going to give it a try. Um, there were several NTSB accidents where I actually counted how many times that those words were used, and it was uh, rather alarming. So when we um, look at a flight, we want to make sure that we can get to our destination and back without any question. The others that we look at, in some cases, uh, economics plays a part in this. If you're a new base and you have a program that you've been in operation with for, say, a year and you bought a house, and then all of a sudden uh, 
competition moves in and you see your numbers start to decrease. But there's a certain point, especially in the uh, community-based programs, that there is a break-even point. Now, if you as a pilot or a medic or a nurse are out there at that particular location and you see that break-even point missed two, three months in a row, that is going to influence how you do business and whether you take a flight or not in the future. Are there some other things? Uh, it's it's um, very, uh, what would I say, varied, and it's geographically specific and demographically specific. Hmm. I've heard a lot of different things as far as we have the white knight issue that we worry about. Uh, we have those yeah. uh, that belittle others and say, oh, you're just a chicken, you need to take the flight, things like that. So I think the survey will actually kind of open up Pandora's box maybe and look at all the different things that we have to worry about. But until we quantify it and quantify it accurately, we really don't know in some cases. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's such a, a, a tough area. And I know, and I've said this on previous podcasts when this has come up, I've, I've always been very acutely aware, especially since, you know, I'm more in administration of, you know, if we do have budget issues and you talked about, you know, flight volume and stuff, I always try to go the extra effort with the pilots and meet with them and say, you know, I don't want you to worry. If we have no flights the rest of this month, that's okay. You know, yes, I want to include you. Uh, and so you're aware of things that are going on, but I don't want to see that as subtle pressure that you have to do a flight. Um, and I agree with you, too. I've seen it at programs where, you know, have you made a decision yet? Are we going to go? Have you made a decision? You know, what's the weather like? And we need to let our pilots do their work, sit there, go through all the reported data, you know, check weather turndown, which we use pretty extensively up here in the Midwest with the program so that we can see what other programs have done and whether that's applicable to this uh, particular flight. But uh, this will be very interesting because I'm sure there's some other subtle things we just are not aware of. Yeah, and I've, you know, I've heard horror stories. Now, I'd say 80% of the industry does a pretty good job. It's that other 20% that we need to kind of uh, identify. But even the 80%, sometimes we get into that um, complacency mode. Mm -hmm. we, we think we're doing everything by the book and right, but uh, I found that the longer you're at a location, the easier it is to get into that rut of complacency. So, so you have to kind of step back and bring new fresh eyes in. And sometimes we don't even know it until somebody else is, points it out to us. So that's what our hope is, is this... Um, process, as we say, it's a cultural health assessment. You as a program can run this, see what your cultural health is, and then mitigate that and come up with strategies to improve that. And then we'll redo that down the road, six to 12 months, and see, we'll see where there's changes uh, been effective. And, and you're benchmarking too, right, against other programs. So, exactly. Yeah. And that's the other thing that we were looking at is, um, you know, you as an individual group is one thing. Then we look at the entire industry, and then we measure each other against industry. We can even do it, you know, uh, geographically. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. We're hoping it'll uh, take off and uh, be very worthwhile. 
Have you have you had talks with uh, CAMES to sort of make that as part of the accreditation program? I know that they're aware of it, and mm-hmm. uh, we've talked about it. We haven't put that out there just yet. I think right now we're looking at um, what what it's going to look like once we've um, done it the first time. Yeah, and then once once we have uh, good solid data and a, a track record, then I think it may be a worthwhile discussion. You say in the near future, any specific data, or is it just some things that you're waiting on that you? I know that they've uh, had several meetings um, in California to finalize the survey. There was some technical issues that we were working out um, in a couple different areas. So I haven't heard back, and I'll, I've got a conference call tomorrow to discuss uh, what the release date is. So I'm hoping within the next um, month, month and a half, I'd really like to have it uh, a good go around before AMTC so we can look at that data in October. I see. Okay. Well, another project that you have had in the works for a while has been the Heliport Risk and Liability Assessment Program. Provide some background on this initiative and why you have chosen the FAA and the International Helicopter Safety Team, or IHST, for acceptance of it. Well, that started out over three years ago. What we were looking at was um, there really wasn't a good checklist that you as an individual organization, a hospital, or a helicopter uh, program can take out and use to give any uh, idea where you stood on a heliport. There were several out there that had different things on them, but they were somewhat antiquated. They didn't really go into the detail it needed to on regulations. So we started looking at it, and what started out I want to say we started out with like 23 questions were too technical for the average person. So what our thought process was, we wanted to make this simple enough that we could give to anybody in the emergency room and they could walk out there and walk through this checklist Hmm. and give them the information that they could understand at a layman's terms and they can then finish it up and it given them an actual risk value, just like a, met, a risk matrix is. It would give them a percentage. So that at the end of this questionnaire, they would be able to look at it and say, okay, our risk exposure and liability exposure is. And then they can look at that and say, well, we need to do something about this. And these are the areas that we can work on. We can identify the low-hanging fruit that they can fix quickly and inexpensively. But we can also, if you take it for, say, a large institution that has multiple hospitals and multiple heliports, and it's not hospital-specific, it's heliport. So you can use it at any heliport in any, any environment. You can use this and see if there's a trend in safety or risk exposure across all of your heliports. Mm-hmm. Um, I enlisted the help of a couple insurance companies and their underwriters have been my testing guinea pigs in the field. And they've used it, and we've rewritten it multiple times, added new questions and explained some of the old ones. Um, and still, it's in final development. But uh, their use of it will give you, as an individual operator or an owner of a heliport, a good idea what your risk exposure is, and also what your liability exposure is. Bringing into the FAA and the IHST, we 
talked about this a little bit at the Heli Expo this past March, and IHST was interested in it. And we look at, on our side of the house, for the air medical side of the house, our pilots, for the most part in the industry, do a risk matrix when they walk in the door for static risk. Then every time they get a flight, they finalize that with the uh, variable risks. If we can standardize the areas that we land at with a risk matrix, then we could actually add that to their matrix. So when they get a flight, they could look up X area, X landing zone and say, okay, that's a low risk or that's a medium risk or that's a high risk. Now we have a much better grasp of what their risks are when they right before they take off mm-hmm. versus showing up and trying to figure it out while you're circling the land. So it's been a long, drawn-out process, but I think it will be a very valuable tool. And IHST is uh, interested, and I've talked to several of the folks at the FAA have actually helped bring information into this tool. I've uh, given it to the folks down at the Transportation Safety Institute to review in Oklahoma City. I know um, a couple of the uh, folks from the heliport directorate have looked at it. The FAA has actually adopted the questionnaire as a training tool already. So we're just trying to get it so it's finalized. And once we get it finalized, it'll probably, its home will probably be on the IHST website as one of their tools. And not just for the U.S., but for the entire um, um, industry globally. Mm-hmm. And we're pretty excited about that. That's great. What are some of the risks, best? factors that you know need to be looked at with helicopter risk and safety well when you're talking about heliport specifically uh some of the risks that we deal with any given day are obstacles uh that Mm -hmm. uh, surround the heliport and a lot of times it's um, the fact that hospitals don't understand what helicopters are and what kind of airspace they need to operate and function safely we have several heliports around the country that have trees that have grown too close or they will look really good when they were three feet tall, but now they're 25 to 30 feet tall and hang over the heliport. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you put lights around the heliport, they should be flush or outside the uh, takeoff and landing uh, area, the telof. We have some that are still out there where the lights are inside that area and they're also um, fairly tall, 8, 10, 12 inches. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to hang a skid up on one of those. And lights, you know, even though they may be a frangible, meaning they break away with impact, still can cause a helicopter to have dynamic rollover or destroy a tail rotor. Some of the other things we look at is uh, just the design of the heliport. Uh, we've had several instances across the United States in the past 20 years where the way the advisory circular is written, uh, architects feel that they only need one way in and one way out. While that is the lowest, barest minimum, the problem we run into is it doesn't set up the most safe function for a helicopter, taking into account performance and winds. Uh, trying to land with a tailwind in a helicopter above 20 knots is uh, pretty darn exciting at any given moment. So that's why we recommend highly that you have two approach and departure paths into any heliport. Mm-hmm. So, and the, uh, the one thing I will say on the risk assessment tool is it doesn't say that a particular location is safe 
or unsafe. What it does is quantifies the risk exposure, and then it gives you the opportunity to make better decisions. Well, well explain. I, I always thought that it was required. I mean, having done this at hospitals, that you had to have you know two approaches, uh, and uh, you know two uh, takeoff areas. Is that the difference between a hella port and a helipad? Um, actually, there, if you read through the advisory circular set forth by the Federal Aviation Administration, DOT, the word helipad is not in there. Heliport, stop are okay. two diff- do different topics. But when you're looking at a heliport, the problem we run into in the air medical industry specifically is there's a somewhat of a double standard when you talk about heliports. Um, there is a guide that the FAA utilizes. Uh, it's called 8900. Their POIs or primary operational inspectors will utilize 8900 when they go and look at heliports. And then we have the advisory circle that covers heliports. In both of those places, hospital heliports are singled out. And, and they say it in such a positive way that hospital heliports are basically serviced by very professional pilots. So we only need one way in or one way out. Hmm. Problem is, I consider myself a professional pilot, but no better than any corporate ENG firefighter or any of the other helicopter pilots. So it's one of those situations. I know a lot of people in the industry and a lot of heliport designers and consultants will not put in heliports with only one way in and one way out. They will develop two approach and two departure paths, some cases three and four if at all possible. Given uh, certain areas, you want as many open avenues into and out of for safety operations as possible. But there are some out there that are rather challenging because there's only one way to get in and one way to get out. Some don't even have that. Some are surrounded by obstacles to such a degree that you pretty much have to have a max performance uh, takeoff and a max performance landing of a hover down, sometimes in excess of 100 feet. Mm -hmm. Especially with uh, the hospitals put in new buildings and sort of surround the helipad almost. So... One of the things this is designed to help is um, reevaluate a heliport on an annual basis. Uh, we're going to try to solicit the insurance companies to help us out. Also, we're going to look at the folks at the state uh, aviation offices in the Department of Transportation and uh, give them this, and also the FAA uh, inspectors in the field. So if we can get more eyes on it. Right now, if you build a heliport today, once it's built and once it's licensed by the DOT and you get your FAA airspace study along with that, there is no requirement to ever have it reinspected. Hmm. Um, so there's heliports in this in existence today that have never had uh, any reinspection for 20 and 30 years. The requirements, the advisory circular, and regulations have changed significantly since 30 years ago. There are heliports on the database and in the books that don't exist anymore. I think the uh, best one was uh, a gentleman from the Department of Transportation in Illinois 
Gary Stevens was the aviation um, manager for Illinois DOT, had uh, experienced an interesting situation where pilot from Illinois, Iowa, pilot from Iowa was coming over to Illinois, and they had never been to this particular hospital, but they just got a brand new Garmin uh, 396 GPS, and it happened to be in the database. So they dialed in the hospital, and off they went. And when they got to the location, they landed in this parking lot, and the security guard asked them, is that if they're looking for the hospital? And they said, well, yeah. So, well, it moved three years ago. It's about five miles down the oh road. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. So that's another issue that we're looking at is if we can inspect them on a regular basis, maybe we can get the database up to speed and a little uh, more accurate as well. Yeah. How many accidents in the industry, and you might not have the exact number, are associated with um, helipads or heliports or, or at them compared to, you know, like scene flights or in route flights? Not a tremendous amount, but there are, have been several. Um, some of the problem we run into is when we do the investigation on this particular piece, a lot of the incidents that involve heliports may not have involved helicopter damage or injury to anyone on the helicopter. What happens is we have um, damage to uh, someone's vehicle or someone's house, or we have personal injuries of public uh, members in and around the heliport. I see. When, that, when that happens, it's not an NTSB reportable accident. And in a lot of cases, depending on who and when and where, these get settled out of court and there are no records. So only having been involved in some of these investigations from a corporate environment, do you really get to see those and know those? Um, there was one in Ohio that I know about where the helicopter landed at a location in a parking lot. They'd used it for about 15 years, but there was no advisory circular, um, uh, what would I say, compliance. Uh, there was no instruction or education for the people there. There was no policies or protocols. Um, helicopter came in and landed and took off several times in 15 years with no problem. One day, helicopter came in and it landed. Happened to be an elderly woman nearby. She fell, broke a hip. Now, whether the helicopter startled her, maybe it even gust of wind caught her, or if the helicopter would have been there or never been there, she may have still fallen over. But in a court of law, given that there was no due diligence with the advisory circular, there was no markings that met any of the criteria set forth by the FAA, there was no lighting, no signs, no training, it was pretty uh, over pretty quick. And I think they settled out of court. The hospital paid $1 million, and I think the helicopter operator paid about a $1 million. So when we go talk to the people at the hospital, specifically the risk managers in the hospital, that's one of the things we like to bring up and say, what is your risk exposure? What is your liability exposure? And that usually gets people interested really quick. What are some things that some of the smaller hospitals can do that might not be able to afford the you know, elaborate uh, 
helipad. Uh, you know, these days still we uh, land in parking lots because we're not there that often. It's not that big of a right. hospital. What What are some things that these hospitals can do? Well, um, it doesn't cost a huge amount of money that you would think of to have a, have a nice heliport. The big thing is having a clear enough area to be able to shoot the approach and have an area that the aircraft can land and take off. The problems we usually run into are, you know, power lines are one, also mm -hmm. uh, power or light poles are another. Um, when you look at putting lights in around the heliport, a lot of times they put the wrong kind in. Uh, we've had several that have put in, you know, asphalt versus concrete and helicopters that they set on asphalt on a hot day have a tendency to sink into a stick. Uh, we've had pieces of asphalt fall off aircraft and damage cars. Worst case would be an aircraft that skid got stuck in the asphalt and during takeoff one skid let loose and the other wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Dynamic rollover. Right. Trees, shrubs, um, we've had several instances where people have put in the heliport and put uh, some type of um, aesthetically pleasing surrounding stone. Uh, I think the most interesting one to see is that um, bark. Wood bark uh, turns into a brown cloud the first time you try to land. Uh, so, you know, just basic educational and informational things. A lot of times, uh, hospitals don't consult the pilots that are going to land there. They just go out and put in a heliport. And then after the fact, they find out it's not working very well. Or when you talk about a larger aircraft or larger aircraft or larger heliport or facilities, especially rooftop, we always recommend you get a consultant that really knows what they're doing because once you start talking rooftop, then you have to start worrying about the National Fire Protection Association codes because those are the ones that everybody adopts at most municipalities in regards to their fire code. And um, there was a huge change that came down the pike in January of this year, and it really basically changed one word. And the NFPA guide now says that uh, the advisory circular that the FAA puts out shall be met versus should be met. Mm -hmm. So what that real, in reality did was it took an advisory circular that the FAA had and now turned it into a regulatory document. So if you're going to build a new heliport today, you now need to make sure that you read the advisory circular and understand what that means, plus the guidance set forth in the National Fire Protection Association's guidebook for heliports. Right. Yeah, the, uh, here in uh, La Crosse, we're actually the hospital's building a new uh, part of the hospital, actually almost a brand new hospital with uh, rooftop pads. I've been involved with uh, those discussions, and it, it is uh, very interesting in the planning of it. Um, do you think this data, too, will help uh, – folks putting in new pads or contemplating new pads? No, I think it will, because I've actually showed up at um, not small hospitals, medium-sized and large hospitals that have put in heliports, and I always wind up being the guy called in after there was a problem discovered. <laughs> yeah. And I stood on the top of one particular hospital that was a, a fairly good-sized regional hospital and was looking at 
the heliport, and I had the CEO of the hospital in one corner. I had the FAA in another corner, the helicopter operator in another corner, and then all the construction guys in the middle. And when I asked the architect, well, how many heliports have you built? And they said, this was the first one. And then I asked him, well, what did you uh, utilize to, the, what was the governance for changing the National Fire Protection Codes out of the 418 guidebook? And I got, well, what's the 418? I said, we have a problem. Yeah, yeah. These are very intelligent, very highly paid individuals that should have known. And it, in the end, it cost the hospital several thousands of dollars to tear that out and redo it. Yeah. So that, you know, this will be uh, very helpful for them. And I, and I think, you know, as programs go, ones that I've been involved with, this has been a thing. One in particular out West was uh, very aggressive about that would once a year would go around and, and do the assessment of, of the pads and looking at the conditions. And, you know, obviously you, you get into a little bit of a thing because they're going to, refer and if you're in a competitive area and you're coming in and saying that you need to do this and that but you know it's time you know hospitals are very acutely aware of risk mitigation things and you know when i was out there i said yeah we've got to talk to them about it uh, they they will be open to it and they were you know yeah and i know i've gotten questioned before by everybody they they say well why did well, the faa should be, would shut them down if it's uh, unsafe and the fact is the faa cannot shut down a heliport that's on private property. They can come in and say, cease and desist, and don't land here, or you shouldn't land here, but they cannot physically, legally come in and shut down the heliport. Now, depending on what legislative um, action has been taken in your state, the DOT in your state may or may not have the ability to do it. Some states do, some states don't, and it's every flavor in between between the coasts. So when we look at this uh, from what you just said, I as a pilot walk in and say, well, our program's not going to land there. I've actually had CEOs stand up and say, that's okay. Program X down the road doesn't have any problem with this. So we go back to pressure. Um, If I as a pilot go to a scene operation and I'm not comfortable with the landing zone, that has been set up by the first responders, and I ask them to move it or change it, most people never question that because I, as a pilot in command, have ultimate authority at that point. And if I feel that it's safe, they would be more than happy to do whatever is necessary to move that and fix it. But if I go to a hospital and say, hey, I don't feel comfortable with this, it's a double standard. Well, this is a hospital helipad. Why don't you want to land here? problem is, in a lot of cases, there's no oversight for safety whatsoever. And we've always had that. Never ask a pilot if he can land there. Ask him, should he land there? Because mm-hmm. you get the pilot that says, yeah, I think we can squeeze it in here. That's, that's uh, the answer. That, that, that's, a, that's a great point, because it, it is. It becomes, I, I remember in dealing with this one hospital, and uh, fortunately, it wasn't the CEO that said someone else will land here. It, it was like, what do we need to do? Um, and, right. And I was very pleased with, with that. So, 
I would say that most of the people I deal with on a regular basis are very conscientious, go out of their way to do everything they can. Um, it's that 10 to 20% that you have to kind of work on to get, get them to kind of come into the fold on that. Yeah. And I didn't realize some of the, uh, you know, the FAA, what, what they can and cannot do. So that's, that's very interesting. Well, what, uh, moving on, what exactly is EDP or en route decision point education, testing and training? And when reading about this initiative, I was fascinated on why you want the NTSB board to petition NASA uh, to be involved with it. Well, EDP is not a new concept, but it is something that we've really been looking at quite a bit for the past couple of years. I know that uh, the program in um, Utah, uh, it's, um, Kent Johnson's program, um, Intermountain Life Flight, has actually implemented this. And what it does is it gives you a very clear-cut written procedure that once you hit a specific parameter, the decision's made for you. You land where you're at or you turn around and go home. A lot of uh, operational manuals talk about uh, not entering uh, IMC or inadvertent meteorological conditions. Mm-hmm. So they say, well, you either do a 180 or you go around it, you go below it, you land. But they really don't quantify that decision point. And we all have weather minimums in our operational manuals. So for an example, if you were daytime and you were in your local area and you're flying, well, your operational minimums are 800 foot ceilings and two miles, for example. What EDP does is it it gives you two additional parameters. If you get to a specific altitude and a specific airspeed, it makes the decision for you. Um, So if you find yourself slowing down, even though you have the 802 and you find yourself going to a lower altitude to feel comfortable, at some point you probably should have already turned around. Well, EDP is a a thing that we're looking at in the question is, how good does it work? What parameters are the best ones to utilize? What's the best airspeed? What's the best? Those are things that we really have a hard time figuring out in real life. So what we're asking NASA to do is to come on board and help us put together a testing program for simulators that we can go back to and reference very good scientific data and said, all right, this is what we found. This is what we found that worked. This is what we found that didn't work. We um, took it to the NTSB. I know Kent Johnson, uh, former president of NEMSPA, had a lot of in-depth discussions with um, Robert Sumwalt and uh, Mark Rosekind, and they both thought it was a great idea, suggested that we put together a um, proposal to NASA We're in the process of getting other industry groups to sign on as supporting this uh, objective. And we'll probably be submitting that at the end of this month to uh, NASA for consideration. That's that's very interesting because it it does seem like it would be hard. I'm not a pilot, but hard to quantify exactly, you know, where that decision point is because sometimes you have to react fairly quickly. I mean, could you provide an example? Well, I think in some cases, part of it, 
is dependent on the weather, and some of it is dependent on terrain that you're dealing with, uh, whether it's uh, flatlands or mountainous. Um, we've had several accidents in flat open space and bad weather just as well as we have in the mountainous terrain. But the problem you run into is, say, my weather minimums are 802 daytime. If I'm out there and I'm flying along and it is a hard 802, I'm probably pushing it just a little bit. I should probably, because all it's got to do is drop another few feet and I'm below my minimums. So what we're looking at is an individual. Where, where does an individual draw that line mentally in his own mind? And everybody's slightly different. But if we could do it in the simulator, and the simulators of today will reproduce those environments fairly well, mm -hmm. we, we might be able to have a very good insight to where that point in space is that, the in route decision point should be made. And and why has NASA done this for the space program? Is that why uh, you want them involved? Um, the big thing I think with them is they've got a significant amount of resources to draw upon that we don't have access to. And we've already got uh, flight safety on board with this uh, initiative and also as well as I believe PHI has um, said they were interested in it uh, and utilization of their simulators. So what we're looking at is NASA to probably provide is the scientific know-how on actually conducting this research study. I see. So to really analyze what the results are. Right, because mm -hmm. uh, it's easy for me to say, AEP is great, you should use it. But for me to be able to have good scientific hard data to point to and back that up is much more important. How, how many uh, simulations do you think that you have to have to, to have the kind of data that you want? If I knew that answer, I'd be working for NASA. <laughs> yeah. it, it seems like you would have to need quite a few. I guess that's what I was thinking. Well, I think what we're looking at, and some of the discussion has been is, if you're going in for, say, your um, annual or your six-month simulator. Oh, yeah, so add it on to what we're already doing. Add it, it, add it to that, you mm -hmm. know, say 10, 12, 15 minutes of this. Give the individual a scenario, have him fly it, and then once he's done that, come back and do it after you've given him instruction on what EDP is and what it means, and then compare the two. That way we can get multiple people from multiple places around the country and then draw the information and conclusions from that. Got you. So what's the uh, timeline on, on this? Do you know? Um, that one's going to take a while. Uh, yeah. it's, it's in its infancy. I mean, we started EDP about two years ago. We did some of our own testing. We've done some um, more further study, but I don't know where it's going to go just yet and what kind of timeline we got. My hope is... If we can get NASA involved, that we could probably have something at least ready by late fall, early early winter. Oh, okay. And that if we can get if we can get it set up so we can start trying start the research project in 2012, I'd be extremely happy. Oh, that's great. Let, let's talk about a program that you have actually working the um, helicopter. Heliport safety sign campaign that NEMSPA is actually uh, selling signs. Uh, what uh, 
triggered this campaign and how successful has it been both as a program and, and as a moneymaker for the association? Well, I think after a couple incidents where we've had individuals, specifically the public, has been uh, injured because of helicopters landing in the heliports at these hospitals. We looked around and we found that while the advisory circular from the FAA has a recommendation in there for a sign specifically directed at the crew members and safety around the aircraft, and then the National Fire Protection Association recommends that there's a no smoking sign. OSHA recommends that if you have a high noise and um, uh, an environment of high wind, that you have a sign for hearing protection and eye protection. There was not anything anywhere that was designed to warn the public. And we looked at that and said, you know, that, that's a disservice that we're doing to the public as an industry. So we got together, and I would have never thought that a sign would have been this much of a pain to design. <laughs> We got a lot of good people out there from several different parts of the, uh, the industry. We talked to OSHA people. We talked to, uh, there's a group called ANSI. It's the Americans uh, National Standards for Signage. Um, so when was the dust settled after about a year, we came up with a, a rough draft and played with it, but we came up with a sign that meets OSHA ANSI standards. It's uh, a helicopter landing area. And it basically says high winds and noise area, personal risk, or person, risk of injury and property damage, stay back 200 feet. Uh, we've since put it, uh, we've got a group in Ohio that makes our signs for us. We sell them. Uh, we, we pay them for whatever the product costs to manufacture. And then the profit that we get from the signs, we go right back into the NEMSPA, the 501c3, and use that to make more signs. We've had several places around the country that have purchased them. I've had them purchased from Florida all the way up to uh, Washington State. Uh, we've had purchases of uh, one sign all the way up to 50. Uh, we can put uh, a silhouette of whatever aircraft you want on it. We can also put your logo on it, full color. So if you want to put warning signs around all your hospital locations or your uh, locations in your area. We can put your logo on there. Uh, there is a small fee for the different silhouettes and the logos, but it meets all the standards. It's the only one out there of its kind. And we're, our hope is that we will help reduce injuries resulting from uh, us transporting patients to and from helicopter yeah. hospital. I, I remember when you were first working on that, it, it seemed like something so simple, and you'd think there'd be more out there. And it is nice that you've filled that niche. Uh, that we looked that at all exist. the signs that were on the market at the time that had anything to do with helicopters, and they had several green signs that said heliport and an arrow pointing this way. We had several that. So we looked at it and said, "All right, what would, what can we do?" So we looked at the definition of what. Uh, caution, warning, and danger was, and warning fit the best. So we stayed in uh, line with what OSHA and ANSI's uh, definition were, 
and we measured them out. And the, the lettering is the, at the top where the warning is. It's the, the height that you can see for 200 feet. And, and we went through quite a nut roll in the design of the sign, but uh, we were very happy with the product at the end, end of the day. Mm-hmm. And so the money you've been receiving, you're just rolling back into the uh, the program. Um, about how many have you sold? Do you know? Um, to tell you the truth, I'm not really sure. I haven't really looked at that in some time. Um, I'd have to get back to you on that one. Yeah, I, that's okay. I think we've gotten gotten through a, a couple hundred so far. Mm-hmm. Well, another topic, I, I was just on a conference call uh, last week about, you know, listing helipads here in the upper Midwest uh, as the Wisconsin Air Medical Council has a nice website uh, with all the helipads in Wisconsin. And I had forgotten about the LZ check effort that uh, NIMSPA and Aerosafe Risk Management uh, had been have been collaborating on. How and why did this start and how successful have you been in cataloging all the helipads in the United States? Um, and do you include LZs that are not at hospitals? And you know, how hard is it to keep up with all these changes? Well, that particular effort's probably been, I'm gonna say five to seven years old. And it wasn't until we uh, partnered with Aerosafe to help out because they brought a significant piece of the puzzle to this um, problem, and that would be the IT piece. And they've uh, helped us with a significant chunk of developing the databases and getting that set up. And we've looked at um, the Wisconsin and the Minnesota areas and how they've done it. Also, Illinois has got a very nice database that you can download and several others. One of the things we looked at was um, what was out there on record for the federal government. And that's where we ran into the issue of outdated information, um, the subject matter of the 396 GPS and missing the, missing the hospital that was no longer there came into play with this. The FAA's database is based on Form 5010. 5010 is the uh, airport master record. And a lot of the heliports that are out there today have not had any updates to that database. So they're out of out of existence. And there's a lot of heliports out there that have never had a 5010 filed. Uh, they've never had a Department of Transportation from the state come in and actually look at it, license it, or have ever had an airspace, airspace study done by the FAA. Doesn't mean they're unsafe, they just never have been licensed. So to capture all that, our grandiose idea was, well, what would, what would it take to have a national database? Well, that's why it's taken five years. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, a, I, I know from just uh, here in Wisconsin, I mean, just constantly keeping up with, you know, construction around pads and how things change and, you know, how we put notices out and just updating that database with that new information. It's tough. But uh, we're getting close, and we've actually got several organizations that have uh, come on board and started adding heliports to it. I know the entire state of Michigan is now on the system. Um, Our good friend Tom Judge is working with the entire state of Maine to get theirs up. Vicki Spediacci has been significantly instrumental in helping California 
reaches uh, working with it. Mm-hmm. The uh, website, I'll throw a plug out there if anybody's interested to look at it, it's www.lz, and then the word check.com. And you can go, anyone can actually access the data, but you actually have to have a license and that's something that you have to buy. So if, say, your state wanted to buy one or two of these licenses, you can go in there and actually populate the database. Now, the one group that has uh, shown a significant amount of interest is Homeland Security. Hmm. Uh, after lessons learned from Katrina, one of the things we found out was most folks that work in the uh, reserves, the National Guard, or the active duty military that help out in a disaster have no idea where hospitals are located. And to have a database that they could go into and pull up uh, latitudes and longitudes and overhead pictures and points of contacts and phone numbers and addresses would be very instrumental in having a successful operation. So they're very interested in it. But it Still working on it. Uh, we're still uh, tweaking the database, and as we go on, we still work the uh, data to make it more user-friendly. Uh, we've had some issues with some different um, interpretations of the latitude and longitude. Uh, there's different ways of interpreting that, so we had to go through and figure out the best way to deal with that. But Aerosafe's been exceptionally helpful, and uh, we've had several people uh, working with them and NEPSPA to get over each hurdle as it goes. So it's it's not coming out of the gate like a rocket ship, but it's momentum is gaining every day that we're dealing with it, and it's getting better and better daily. So I'm really happy with where we're at. I, I look at the future and think that probably in the next uh, 12, 18 months, we'll probably see a very good footprint of the United States in the database. That's excellent. Has it been primarily uh, the hospital or the air medical state associations uh, recs that have helped you with this yes and no uh, mm-hmm. some some of the state associations are I know that uh, there's been a couple operators who have um, actually purchased a license for their uh, operational control centers to populate this data I see and we try to make sure that if we see an area that's got multiple users, we don't want to have three and four users for one area. So we try to coordinate those efforts so that we only have one person entering data. Now, the key there is one piece that we really wanted to add to this database that we've not seen in any other database was the ability to have a good database, but at the same time, the ability to have a real-time NOTAM system. So if you as a pilot were to go out to a hospital that you normally routinely go to and you saw a problem, be it an issue with the heliport itself or say the rotating beacon was out that day or all of a sudden somebody moved in and there was a crane sitting there or somebody put in a antenna across the street, you could go back and type that into the database and it would come up like an email alert. And then anybody that would see the map would automatically see it colored red that there is a new note amount. Whoever's in charge of the database, the what we would refer to as the gatekeeper, 
they would see that if it's something that would need investigation, they would investigate it. If it's something that was temporary, it would be put on that NOTAM system for that period of time. Then once that was deemed no longer necessary, it would fall off. If it was permanent, it would be incorporated into the database. And that's the one thing that we really like about this system is the ability to have a real-time NOTAM system uh, with that. And you had asked earlier whether it was just hospital heliports that you could put in there, and no, you, any heliport. Uh, we also look at um, emergency landing sites that are pre-designated. Right. So if you have area in your state that, well, we, we know for a fact at this particular area that we have multiple accidents throughout the year, we could pre-designate an area out there and call it an emergency landing site. Um, the FAA recommends it. We recommend it. Does not have to meet the criteria of a heliport, but you could always, you know, make it clean, make it flat, make it level. Put some uh, temporary barriers out there to keep uh, people away. But we could put that information in the same uh, database. Yeah, we've been uh, working uh, with those here at uh, at our program, and it is. Uh, you know, an issue of that you want to keep those updated too, because you're really, you know, EMS will meet you or fire and rescue. And so they're still setting up a, a landing zone, but at least you know where the coordinates are and you know what the obstructions are in advance. So um, how much is a seat, Rex, at the four LZ check? I mean, how much would it cost? Uh, last I checked, and I'll have to go back to Aerosafe and double check on this, but I believe it's... Um, Say if you as a state wanted to have a license, it would be about $99 a month. Okay. Now, we keep trying to get more uh, seed money from other organizations to help offset that cost. And our hope is that we will be able to do that. But for now, that's the only way we can pay for the IT bill, which is pretty big. Yeah. And, and I like the way you talk about with the NOTAM system in place. I mean, what we've done is we've got a website, which is good. We have all the uh, helipads in the state listed, and each program is responsible for keeping the ones in their area updated. So we actually have a nice map uh, that's been done by one of the, uh, I think it's one of the pilots here in the state that has, has done that, and it's excellent information. It's that kind of the NOTAM thing, and we end up, using the listserv for one to get stuff out but then also um, the weather turndown site as a hazard it gets listed in there because we use that quite a bit but it those are all kind of three different systems rather than you know it all feeding into the the same so i can see the advantage of that um well let's let's move on to uh, z coach uh, tell us about online uh, fatigue management training and uh, was it based what is this based upon and is this a free or a fee-based uh, program that's uh, uh, that you've developed with Z coach well Z coach uh, came about uh, we had some issues that uh, had uh, popped up after some accidents and we looked at a couple things specifically about four or five years ago one is fatigue itself, and then the other one was um, if an individual were to take a nap and he woke up, he would not be fully awake before he took the flight. Uh, so there was some 
for what I say, confusion as which which was worse and which was uh, what we we did about it. So we enlisted the help of an, an individual by the name of Dr. Mark Rosekind, is uh, one of the foremost experts uh, in the in the world when it comes to fatigue and fatigue mitigation. He's worked with uh, the Air Force and the Army, Special Operations, NASA, and has been an instrumental in several um, studies and um, has worked really closely with us and has been a phenomenal friend of NEMSPA. He's also now actually on the uh, NTSB board and doing some great work in uh, Washington, D.C. there. But uh, Dr. Rosekind put together this training program. It's an online tool that you as an individual go on to and you put in your information and your habits and where you sleep, when you sleep, how you sleep. And it helps you identify bad habits and helps you figure out when the best time for you to sleep and what you are as an individual uh, experiencing in fatigue and uh, how, to, how to improve that. Now, the other thing that I would say before I forget about it is the insurance companies have really jumped on board with this and uh, Alertness Solutions, who is the uh, organization now that is uh, overseeing Z-Coach, has um, AIG Insurance will give any one of their air medical programs 10 free to trial uh, Z-Coach uh, sign-ins. So Z-Coach, and we've had a lot of good input. It's not something you take and it's, doom, it's over with in a day. This is something you actually have to do for several weeks and it trains you. It's almost like watching your biorhythm. You can see where your, your fatigue level is. Uh, I don't have enough time on this call to explain the whole thing. We have a link on the National EMS Pilots Association's website directly to Alertness Solutions and Z-Coach with uh, what it is, how it works, what the pricing is. But uh, we've gotten a phenomenally good amount of feedback from the air medical pilots and uh, several of the crew members in the medical side of the house that have done this. The funny thing is, is uh, one of the gals from Alertness Solutions said the best uh, report they've gotten so far on how to, why, that why this is a good product didn't come from the pilot came from the pilot's wife. Huh. That's interesting. Well, what are some of the factors? What are some of the individual factors by going through this that you find out about yourself? Because, you know, I think none of us want to admit that we're tired, you know, or you know, that we're fatigued. You know, oh, we'll, we'll tough it out. We'll make it through. Well, I think, you know, what, what you eat when do you hmm. sleep? What do you do before you go to sleep? How do you prepare to go to sleep? What do you do in your bedroom before you fall asleep? Do you work on your computer? Do you read? Do you, uh, what's the temperature? I mean, there's all those little idiosyncrasies that this looks at and helps you understand what the good habits are and what the bad habits are and how to improve your sleep and reduce your fatigue. Um, they, you know, uh, talking to uh, Dr. Rosekind, one of the things he talks about is that people that, you know, have a drink before they go to bed, they may go to sleep better, but alcohol actually inhibits good um, sleep pattern. 
it uh, does not allow for the best sleep. So when you wake up, yeah, you may have slept for eight hours, but you didn't get the same kind of sleep because there's different types of sleep. Right. Yeah, he spoke at AMTC in Texas, right? Wasn't he? Um, there? I, I know. I I've... think actually it was in California, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that might be right. But it was a very interesting uh, uh, discussion. Well, you know, with the recent news that with air traffic controllers falling asleep, this is a very timely subject. Um, uh, you know, and, and you, you go through this, and I guess that would help you recognize fatigue in yourself and teammates as well. I mean, what what can we do as a team to 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 look at those factors, you know, with yourself and with with others. Well, I know that uh, it kind of goes against the grain of uh, some of the um, corporate thinking, but being allowed to take a power nap sometime during that uh, shift is not a bad idea because the only thing that actually will fix fatigue is sleep. Sleep, right. Um, you may be able to drink a little coffee or you may be able to uh, get some cold air on your face or throw some water on your face and wake you up for a short period of time. But the body at some point is going to say, uncle, and uh, four in the morning when your circadian rhythm is at its absolute worst is not the time in the middle of the night flying a helicopter that you want to start having micro sleeps 30 minutes from base. Right. So I think, one of the things we look at, and you, you brought up air traffic controllers, that's a whole other um, issue with um, that whole industry, but being able to take the power nap. Now, we always expect our, our people, our employees, to show up well-rested and ready to work, but we also work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and we rotate day shift and night shift, and we do shift swing shifts and all kinds of bizarre things body wasn't designed to rotate back and forth that much. So we say, yeah, come rested, come ready to work. But if you need to take a, a 30, 40 minute power nap, you should be allowed to do that because it's in everybody's best interest. Now, if you are having issues and you can't sleep and you're still tired, you might want to talk to and consult with your physician and find out if there's something else going on there because we do have issues. And the FAA just did um, put uh, put out some new rules and regulations on sleep apnea. If you have sleep apnea as a pilot, you now have to report that to the FAA's flight examiner, and you have to go take a, uh, a sleep study test. Mm. So it's it's very serious and it's uh, very important. If we see each other, you know, you walk in and it's like the difficult situation we've been put in the past. I've actually had to ground the aircraft because my crew member was almost incapacitated. They came off a 24-hour shift as a firefighter, and it wasn't a quiet shift. They had five runs in a 24-hour period. Then they come automatically over to work on a 12-hour shift with the aircraft. And at some point, you know, when they keep falling asleep during the ship briefing, you got to say time out. This isn't going to work. Right. Yeah, that's that's the one thing that's so hard at a program. You can you know the CAME standards and sleep time, and but that's only at your program. You can't control with what's going outside of that, except what you just did. You know, which is uh, you know a time out. 
but yep. um, there's yeah. very little control that we have, and so many people do have uh, multiple jobs that they work at. No, I agree, and it's it's kind of the nature of the beast in our industry. But I think giving giving that individual the ability to raise his hand and say time out goes to the core of what we're looking for as an industry, and that's a just culture. Right. He should not penalize for being exhausted in you know in a specific case. If it's habitual, that's a different story. But if right. one night he hits the wall and he says, I just can't go any further. He needs to be able to raise his hand and have corporate support to back him up when that happens. And I think that's that fundamental philosophical change that we're looking for across the industry. And it's a slow process. Right. And I know, you know, we all have some nights where you sleep great and others not. And I probably do everything I'm not supposed to do. You're not supposed to get up and work and get into computers and stuff. You're supposed right. to read. And I'm, always, I'm probably the. Yeah, you know, we always talk about working the night shift and you get off at, say, 630 in the morning. By the time you get home, say hello to the wife, the kids go to school. You might get to bed at about 8 a.m. Well, my neighbors aren't sleeping, and they're out mowing their grass, right. and yeah. the trash truck comes by, picks up the trash, and even on the best day, I might get lucky and get six hours of sleep. That's that's best. Um, I've never gotten eight hours of sleep during the day when I was working night shift. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we say, yeah, it's, it's sleep deprivation is not something you just get over after one night's sleep. You have... Um, chronic fatigue starts to wear at you if you I was in a situation once where I was one of two pilots at a program and uh, we started a new program and we were opposite each other for 28 straight days now knowing what I know today this is this is several years ago I would have never let that happen but uh, I found that after day 28 they won't let you go any farther because that's about the time most people go postal yeah well, what's your thought? I mean, I've been following this uh, air traffic controller thing, and obviously having two controllers there uh, makes sense, uh, leaving an airport with just one. But there seems to be a lot of negative things associated with taking that power nap, even on a break, which doesn't make sense to me. Well, I know we allow pilots that fly overseas to take a nap in the seat when there's two people in the cockpit. Right, right. Um, I think it's a it's a fundamental change in the philosophy that has been there for a long, long time. And anytime you make that change, it's difficult to get past several barriers in the industry. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'll probably get yelled at for this, but in some cases, I don't I don't blame the FAA for this issue directly. They're a um, dealing with a situation that has been put on them by their legislative body. Uh, yeah. We have the FAA Reauthorization Act that's been stagnant in Congress on the Hill for years. Remember when the first individual was reported sleeping as a FAA, or a FAA controller? It was on a weekend, I think, and it was like at a night shift, and it was a supervisor. I was like, what supervisor in his right mind is working night shift? Usually they don't work night shift. Well, part of the problem is as people have left and retired, they've not been able to 
rehire. There's been a lot of, and, that, and, and across the board for the FAA, because they don't have the money to rehire, they don't replace people. So you got guys working some of the most bizarre shifts. They work a day, then they work at night, then they work a swing shift. I, I thought my my schedule was bad. Yeah. Well, I, I was just so, you know, it's just like, no, you have to be rested. And even if you're on break, you, you can't take a nap. And, it, it you know, with hearing the sleep study information, that those power naps can help. So, well, and, I, and it, working, working uh, in that environment is definitely different than being in the cockpit of an aircraft to some degree. But fatigue is fatigue it'll sneak up on you when you least expect it right. and there's a whole once you once it hits you you've been there there's not a whole lot you can do about it at some point in time well let's have uh, uh, people in there would be helpful yeah well, well let's uh move on you've personally been involved in a a number of uh initiatives uh first the j h s i t or joint helicopter safety implementation team I know their challenge is reducing the helicopter worldwide accident rate by 80% in the next 10 years, which actually ends in 2016, uh, and to improve the safety image of all helicopters worldwide. What are the different groups, and which one have you been working on uh, with uh, JHSIT? Well, Jason, the one group that I was um, invited to work with, um, Tom Jed. Tom Judge out of Maryland is the uh, head of that particular group, and that's the infrastructure group. And the infrastructure is uh, anything that's internal to the industry that we utilize for operations. Heliports, uh, weather reporting, IFR, uh, low-altitude infrastructure, all those pieces are uh, things that we've been looking at for the last uh, almost three and a half, going on four years now. I think it I started with them after the AMTC in Tampa. But um, we've worked with several different groups, and Tom's been phenomenal at bringing in some of the leading experts in multiple different uh, disciplines. We've got several individuals from the operational side. Uh, we have some consultants on the heliport and design guide. We have several meteorologists that are involved on the weather side. And uh, we've got a number of folks from the FAA that are involved. So we have a really awesome cross-section to brainstorm and bounce ideas and work and research with. So with the infrastructure group, we're writing some white papers on uh, improvements uh, and research projects, looking at the weather reporting. Uh, specifically, I was involved in that for a while. Uh, there's several weather reporting systems out there that report to what's called the uh, National Weather Service uh, Nadine site, which is where the FAA pulls all of its weather. But not every weather system reported to the site that the FAA pulls from. So we're looking at, well, how do we do that? So we enlisted the help of the uh, NASEO, the National Association of State Aviation Officers, and said, well, how do we do this? How do we do it at a lower cost? How do we get that small airport that has a weather system, an AWAS-3, which is the requirement to report for FAA weather, how do we get them into the system? So we've actually uh, been instrumental in helping kind of push that along. Um, also integrating some of the weather systems that are 
out there that are private systems that also meet the uh, criteria necessary. Getting So now we have more information available, and we're still working on that, but we have more information available so better decisions can be made. Um, we also look at how that impacts the reporting systems that we have. One of the big ones out there that we've been utilizing a little bit here in the last couple of years is the what's referred to as the HEMS tool. So it was specifically designed for the helicopter emergency services market out of a weather summit meeting in Denver, Colorado uh, a few years, or I think it was Boulder, Colorado, it was, uh, a few years back in 06. And it was a tool designed to report weather phenomenon 5,000 feet and below where helicopters fly. And it was designed to pull the data from those AWAS sites. Well, it's an algorithmic tool. So the more data entered, the better the end result. So that's where we're looking at bringing in more of these AWAS stations around the country because if we can pump more data into that, the end result is a smarter uh, system which actually pumps out much more accurate information because where the data is missing in between two points, it's making its best guess. Mm -hmm. The algorithm goes through it saying, well, I think in between here and here is probably this, and then it gives a graphical representation and a color view. Well, if we can pull in all the AWOS stations around the country that will um, work and put that into the system, we'll make that system a whole lot smarter across the board so we actually have access to, to more pertinent, up-to-date, up and accurate information. Yeah. So and that was, that's a big push that Jason's doing. Heliports are another one. We're working on the heliport side. The IFR infrastructure... It's going to take a while. That's a big piece of the puzzle, but it's it's actually out there. It's it's being built on right now. Interesting. I, and I know you've done. Uh, I was going to mention when you said AWOS. I know you had done quite a bit of work in Indiana with that, right? From the federal, the state, and looking at the areas that are completely uncovered. Right. I know um, when I did that was back in two thousand and four, and at the time, at two thousand four, Indiana as a state had. 42 AWAS stations, AWAS 3s in the state of Indiana, but only 21 reported mm -hmm. to National Service. So over half the sites that were available did not report. Now, they were there. You could still call them up on a phone, but that takes a while. Um, if you dial one up, listen to it, then hang up, dial up another one, listen to it, hang up. It takes, but if you can pump all those into that, national system, the Nadine system, it would make it 10 times smarter Yeah, and, and instantaneously available. Yeah, I, I've always said, and I've said this on previous podcasts too, you know, that weather reporting is such a vital thing for HEMS operations and people in the, you know, fixed wing or, you know, just even commercial, it's, it's hard to understand that because they're going into controlled airspace all the time and we do so much work in areas that don't have it. So, I know that was an argument that we had uh, during the NTSB hearings. Uh, we heard quite yes. a bit of time. We were being measured against the 121 operations of the world. And our rebuttal was, well, if we got the money that the 121 operations hmm. got for our infrastructure, we probably wouldn't have this 
problem today because it's very um, very dramatically different. So that's something that we're pushing with this IHST and the JSIT program, trying to get that development started. So it, it's it's a slow process, but you know perseverance pays off. Hopefully in the end. Yeah, and. Finally, I did, it, you exhaust me with all the things that you're uh, working on, but the uh, Transportation Safety Institute in Oklahoma City, um, what uh, specifically uh, are you working on with them? Well, um, last summer, myself and a couple of uh, other folks from the um, heliport world went down to um, visit with the folks at TSI. The FAA, in conjunction with TSI, have developed a phenomenal course that's first of its kind. It's uh, an evaluation course for heliports. What it's for is the Flight Standards District's Office POIs or primary operational inspectors to go through. And a three-day course teaches them what they need to know when they go out and evaluate these heliports because there was no course in the past. And a lot of times you'd get POIs who were not helicopter pilots coming out and trying to make decisions, doing the best they could, but not knowing anything about helicopter operations or heliport design or safety. The FAA and TSI saw this void and this need and have just stepped up to the plate phenomenally and put together an excellent course. And myself and several other folks in the industry were asked to come and evaluate the evaluation course and give our input. So. A lot of the stuff that was put together in there is um, from the industry, from the people in the industry. And I've got several pieces in there. We talked earlier about the risk assessment tools, one that will probably be put in there later. Uh, this month is their first inaugural um, course. Oh. And I talked to um, Rick Thorpe, who is uh, one of the developing people on it. And I think they have somewhere in the neighborhood of over 130 people signed up for this course, and they can only run generally about 18 to 20 at a time. And they've indoctrinated a lot of off-site, hands-on work for these guys, so they can actually go out and look at a heliport, measure it, check for obstacle clearance, use the inclinometers and the, the, the compasses that we use when we uh, uh, survey and audit, audit it. So we're really excited about this course, and we really think that the FAA has hit a home run uh, in that uh, particular piece. Uh, will just make our jobs that much easier for years to come. Uh, uh, how long of a course is it, Rex? I mean, is it a day long, or is this multiple Right day? now it's a three-day course. It's, uh -huh. uh, it's, um, and the other thing, we're looking at not only FAA folks, but also uh, the state aviation officers from the Department of Transportation in each state being able to pump these guys through there. And then also you can, I think, uh, talking to Rick, we can probably offer to any, anybody. It, it, TSI does take money for their courses. So if you wanted to go take this course, you could. Are you looking at any type of online thing, or is this always going to be a in-person? Um, I think for what they're doing, it's going to be an um, um, on-site course. And a lot of that's because they've adopted a significant amount of actual hands-on. They go visit the heliport. They take bus you out there, sit you down, and go through and lay it out. So that's something you just can't get via the computer, I think. 
Right. Yeah. We may look at developing some additional stuff on the NEMSPA side. We have our um, heliport uh, design uh, safety program online that we've had for a couple of years. That's towards hospitals and architects and pilots. It's about 92 slides long, but it walks you through all the different things in a heliport, where the references are and what means what, and some of the basic information. But this is um, probably about five times as in-depth because it really goes into the rules, the regulations, really goes into the details on the IFR piece and uh, some other issues too. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rex, uh, you have a big announcement regarding your now 16 years with OmniFlight. Uh, when you first told me about this, I was extremely excited for you, so fill in our listeners. Well, I've been running my uh, own consulting business now on about seven and a half years, and um, it's really starting to take off with all the stuff that I've been involved in. Uh, I have turned away a significant amount of uh, clientele over the past year to two, and I've talked to the folks at uh, OmniFlight and asked and have been granted to take uh, a slightly lesser role than what I'm in now. As a regional operations manager, it's uh, pretty demanding. Mm -hmm. I'm on call 24-7. I do a lot of traveling, and I cover six states and 21 bases. I've enjoyed it phenomenally, met a lot of great people, and hope that I've made a pretty good impact on those, those that I work with. But I think the opportunity is now there that uh, I want to jump in with both feet, so to speak, with the uh, consulting group, and um, I'm going to stay on with OmniFlight, but in a lesser role as uh, going back to being um, a line pilot, which um, I enjoy. I like flying, and I like I like uh, EMS quite a bit. So the staff at OmniFlight have been. Uh, more than generous and allowed me to make that change and probably be making that transition throughout the month of July and into August. Interesting. Well, that's very exciting. Uh, Tell our listeners what exactly RJ Alexander Consulting will be focusing on or has been focusing on, I guess. Oh, it has been. uh, Heliport uh, safety, heliport design. Mm -hmm. We work, I work uh, with uh, architects. uh, I work with lawyers and hospitals, uh, we'll look at risk evaluations and also uh, set up uh, policies and procedures and protocols and uh, work with first responders and training training environments. Also look at uh, paramedical programs, do audits with their communication systems. One of the things we're looking at doing, or I'm looking at doing, is my particular firm is specialized in certain things, and I have a um, uh, cohort in crime, I guess you would say, uh, out of uh, the East Coast that we're going to probably end up merging our two firms. And one of the things we really want to get into, because we, we both bring so many different things to the table, is the educational piece. With the change in the National Fire Protection Association's codes, there's a big void right now in training people on what that means. So we're looking at uh, coming up with and producing some of that. That's um, one of our endeavors at this time. So 
there's a lot of different things out there that we're looking at. I've talked to several folks, uh, not only in the United States, but overseas that are interested in um, some of the work we're doing as well. Interesting. Well, it's just so great to see that the, the business has taken off and uh, looking at even expanding further um, with that. So I wish you uh, the best of luck. I, I did want to ask you, though, um, you know, staying on as a, a line pilot, how does that help you what, with what you're going to be doing? Um, I would say the, the hardest thing is um, in this particular industry, in, in aviation, it's, up, it's hard to keep up. Uh, because technology changes daily, operational changes daily, FAA regulations change daily. To to have that ability to keep you know keep my finger on that pulse, so to speak, allows me to make better decisions as a um, consultant. Allows me to tap into a significant amount of experience and expertise that's out there. And being able to use that as my own personal reference base, I think is significant. It gives me um, more credence. And um, when I'm talking to uh, customers or potential customers, um, with that and given my experience so far, I don't want to jump out and then three years from now be one of those guys, oh, I didn't know about that. Right. Right. So there, there's going to come a time that I have to give it up because I know there's going to be a time that it's just going to be too much. Uh, hopefully that means that the business is doing so good that, yeah, I won't have to worry about it anymore. But until that comes, I'm going to, check, I'm going to keep my uh, feet planted firmly on flying, right. if that makes sense at all. Right. Yeah, well, and, and I think, too, knowing you uh, – you you love this work too, so um, I, I think that's a, a part of it. And then helping you stay. So with your experience in consulting, you're actually flying the line, and you understand those things. So it gives me the ability, I think, to you know be closer to it. Um, there's a lot of things you see from the outside, but until you're in in the in the mix and working on it and seeing it on a regular basis and being that close to it. Uh, some things just don't translate well unless you've seen it with your own two eyes. And yes. I really enjoy working with the people out there and working with the med crews and the first responders and the hospitals. Um, just a phenomenal group of people to work with. And that's very enjoyable, very rewarding. And I just like working with uh, the other folks, the you know TSI, the FAA, the Air Medical Associations. Uh, being involved in that is 17 years. I really don't want to give that up just yet. Right. Well, uh, Rex, it has always been a pleasure talking to you over the years. And uh, when you were mentioning those years, I didn't realize how long it's been. <laughs> um, uh, you're, you're really not only very competent and experienced in what you do, but uh, I and I know many others know that you're just a, a great guy and really an easy person to work with. And so I know you will be very successful with your consulting work. So best of luck with it. Well, I appreciate the vote of confidence, Ed. Thank you very much. And thank you very, very, very much again for uh, having me on. Well, it's been great having you on the podcast.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-568-8276. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Take care and fly safe.